Thank you, Richard. Uh, if you would, grab one of those blue Bibles around, uh, turn to page 930. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's printed word out in front of them. Uh, if you've got your Bible, great job. Uh, we are going through a series right now called Whole, where we're going through the whole Old Testament, one book per week through the entire Old Testament. Uh, just as a, a question of curiosity, though, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the book of Nahum? Just raise your hand if you've actually heard a sermon on Nahum. Is there, are, are you, are you, are you serious? No one's ever heard a sermon on Nahum? Well, guess what? Me neither. So we're all going to experience something new together this morning. If you would uh, turn to Nahum chapter 1, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8, but really Nahum is only about three pages in the Bible, so we're going to be looking at all of Nahum this morning. Uh, but with that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us through Nahum, the prophet, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Uh, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you as we pray? Uh, Father, may we hear the very voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the prophet of Nahum. And Father, would you give us a picture of the goodness of the gospel? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, there's a reason none of us have ever heard a sermon on Nahum, and it's because it's one of the more difficult books for us to understand. It's very short, and if you've been with us for any amount of time in this series, you'll know that uh, the minor prophets, those sort of 12 prophets starting in Hosea uh, and going on, so Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all those prophets, they can start to sound very much the same, uh, which makes sense because uh, people often refer to those minor prophets as the book of the 12 because they write and talk a lot about the same themes. And so for some of us, this theme of God's justice and his mercy has been something we've been hearing about for several weeks now. Uh, so I thought it would maybe be helpful for us to sort of position ourselves to hear the prophet of Nahum within a sort of a broader view of the canon of scripture, of the whole Bible. So uh, if you're a student of the Bible or if you're brand new, I have a trivia question for you. Hopefully you'll be able to get the right answer. And it goes like this. What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? You can say it out loud if you know it. Yeah, you shall. Man, y'all sound like you made it. That was so good. That's what you sound like. I don't know. I'm just kidding. 
But yeah, you know the answer, right? Uh, well, Jesus tells us, right? Because in Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And in Matthew 22, Jesus gives this famous answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But then because, you know, there is also a second side to that coin, Jesus adds another layer to the greatest commandment. He says there's a second commandment. And what's the second commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, look in, the, in Matthew 22 on the screen. And a second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But as many of us know that, even if you haven't been around Christianity, you probably have an idea that loving God and loving our neighbor is sort of a big deal, right? That's sort of the goal. Those are the greatest commandments. But what's interesting that you may not have noticed before is that when Jesus says those words, um, I, I imagine it's sort of like two nails holding up this beautiful picture frame of the beautiful and the good and the true, this beautiful life. You know, and what is that beautiful life? It's loving God and loving our neighbors, right? And those are the nails holding up this beautiful picture of our life. Good news. <laughs> well, I think it depends on whether you are a slave in Nineveh or you are in charge in Nineveh, right? This is the message of the gospel. It is great news for the repentant and those who know they need to be forgiven. But God, Jesus' return is not going to be good news for everybody who turns away from him. Uh, you know, Peter can say, what is to become of those who do not obey the gospel of grace? God's judgment waits them. Right? That's very much what's going on in Nahum. Uh, you know, Nahum is a prophet which is meant to disturb us, right? It's meant to make us think, where do I stand with God? Do I really love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do I love my neighbor? And if I don't do those things, what is the fate of a good and just God? What is the fate that he will give me? So I know Nahum is difficult, like I said. Uh, there's a reason. None of us have ever heard a sermon on Nahum probably before. Uh, so as I studied Nahum, I thought it would be helpful uh, to read how some other commentators have talked about it. And so um, I was very influenced by a pastor named Mark Dever. Uh, he uh, preaches at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, yes, I'm a Baptist at heart. Sorry. I preach like a, someone told me I preached like a Baptist. I didn't know if that was a compliment or not. I hope it was. Probably wasn't. But Mark Dever, a great Baptist uh, preacher right in Washington, D.C., uh, wrote a book called The Message of the Old Testament. And I found his um, outline very, very helpful in understanding Nahum. And so uh, sort of to piggyback off of him to summarize, he, he says the way that you and I should understand Nahum is to look at three things, ask, asking three questions. Are we in charge as God's people? Are we in charge? Is evil in charge? You know, is Nineveh in charge? Or is God in charge? And how do we know? So that's how we're going to look at Nahum this morning. I think this may be helpful. Are we in charge as God's people? Right, so if you go down to Nahum, remember this is a message 100 years after Jonah had already preached to Nineveh. And what you need to know in terms of the Bible, in terms of Bible history, uh, there's not a ton of dates that you need to remember in the Bible. Like you don't need to remember a bunch of historical information, but there are a couple of things you should have a vague idea of. And the first thing is that in the Old Testament, God raises up a nation called Israel, and it has its peak with guys like David and Solomon. But after Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over, you may remember that that kingdom splits into 
It splits into two, and we get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they, those two kingdoms go along for a little while, but in 722 BC, 722 BC, Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh, comes and they wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel and they exile off God's people, the ten tribes, and they decimate the land. And so what happens is God sends Jonah in around 760 BC and he says, preach repentance to Nineveh. And they do for a moment, but it's choked out eventually. And within just a few decades, those Assyrians come and they wipe out God's people. And then a few decades later, God decrees that they are going to be punished for what they did and for their unceasing evil. And that's really where we get Nahum. Nahum knows that the northern kingdom has been wiped out by Assyria. Remember, they're not just cruel for God's people. Nineveh was in charge. During Nahum's life, they were the big bad guys in charge. It's incredible. The city of Nineveh was known for having two walls. <laughs> they had two exterior walls that were impregnable. Nobody could get through their two walls. And what Nahum does is he says, even though those walls are still standing, he says, God is going to wipe you guys out. So the reason I mention all that is because it's very easy for us as believers who worship the true God to think that, like, we shouldn't suffer like this. We shouldn't be suffering in life. Things should be easier, right? Have you ever asked yourself that or asked God that and thought, man, if I love God and he loves me, why are things so hard? <laughs> why does nothing ever go my way? Why are the brakes always going against me? Why aren't I in charge more? Why don't things go my way? Well, that's very much the question in the people's minds during Nahum's life. What they know about Syria, Assyria, excuse me, what they know about the Assyrians is they are in charge. They have destroyed the northern kingdom, and there is no sign that they are ever going to not be in charge. We are definitively not in charge. And, you know, as God's people, they knew they weren't in charge. They had to be dependent on the Lord. Now look at verse 7 right there. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. You know, were God's people in charge? No. They had to go to God to have refuge. They couldn't defend themselves. And I guess the reason I, I bring all this up is because what was, a, what was the life experience of a believer during Nahum's day? And what is still true for you and me is we live this life utterly dependent on God. We are not in charge. You know, Jesus says you can't even turn one hair black or white. Well, you know, I guess they didn't have hair dye back then, but really you can't turn your hair black or white. We are not in charge. We wish we would be. And the hard thing for us to accept is the way that God views the perfect life, our perfect life, is we live in a way where we are always dependent on him. Always dependent on him. And that can grate against us. Like Just like it grated against these believers in Nahum's day. They wanted to be independent. They wanted to do their thing. They wanted to determine their own future. But they weren't. They had to rely on the Lord. And you and I are in that same situation. We are meant to always be dependent on the Lord and to trust in him. 
Um, you know, for me, this really hit home to me personally, this idea of being utterly dependent, recognizing that I'm not in charge, right? You know, um, I mean, everyone ever had a toddler? You know, talk about losing your illusion of control, right? You immediately lose all illusion that you are in control in this life. But this really hit home for me this past week because, as some of you know, um, I was able to skip out uh, a, a whole day this past week on a prayer retreat, and it was wonderful. A friend uh, to our church offered up their little cabin at Lake of the Woods, and I spent the whole day praying uh, for our congregation. So if you send in a prayer request, uh, know that I prayed for you um, uh, extensively about that. And if you didn't send in a prayer request, I prayed for you anyway. <laughs> I still got you. I prayed even more for you if you didn't send in one. I'm just kidding. Um, it was great. It was glorious. I didn't see a single person the whole time. I prayed out loud like a crazy person. It was awesome. But the reason I, I, I don't want to talk about my prayer retreat too much because Jesus warns people to not use prayer as a means of gaining approval or respect from people. So I don't want you to respect or approve of me more because I spent a day praying. Honestly, that's kind of par for the course for a pastor is to pray, right? But I do want to tell you about one sort of breakthrough moment that came to me while I was on that prayer retreat. Um, after I'd been praying for a good long while, um, I was praying about a particularly difficult issue. Um, don't worry, it wasn't you. <laughs> it was somebody else. It wasn't your particularly difficult issue. Somebody else's um, at, um, you know, the other church, um, Daxonville Presbyterian, those guys. <laughs> I was praying about a particularly difficult issue, and it occurred to me, after I got done praying about it, that I should write down a note. And, you know, so I started writing down how I thought I could help this situation. And then it occurred to me. What, what occurred to me? You know what occurred to me? If I really believed in prayer, that the prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much, I don't need to help. There's no book recommendation. There's no meeting. There's no counselor. There's no helpful life advice that I can give that would hold a candle to the Lord working powerfully as the refuge of his people because he's good. And I realized in that moment, I didn't need to help. I don't need to give book recommendations. I don't need to do these things. I need to pray all the more fervently for God himself to be at work in your life and in your marriage and in your family and in your work situations. And it was an incredibly humbling experience for me because I love giving advice. But what happened in that moment is I put the pen down and I prayed all the more fervently. And I imagined and I prayed the rest of the day as if I were utterly dependent on God to do everything on every prayer request in your life. You see, this, I think is the kind of dependency God's people always need to live with. I mean, I wish I could go every month out to that cabin at Lake of the Woods and be reminded to always, always be dependent. God himself has to be at work. God is our refuge. I mean, do you have that kind of dependency? I want that kind of dependency. I mean, what do we trust in? Our own efforts and our own understandings? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? He will direct your paths. Utter dependence. The believers in Nahum's day, they knew they were not in charge, so they had to be dependent. And believers, friends, you and I are in the same situation. 
And I'm here to remind you to be utterly dependent on Christ, who is our rock. So first question. Second question. Well, if, if I'm not in charge, is evil in charge? You know, I know we all know the answer is no, but do we really live like that? I mean, what keeps you up at night, right? This fear that society or life or the country or the world is going in the wrong direction, that maybe perhaps the wrong people have their hands on the steering wheel. Like, who's in charge, right? I mean, we can all say, well, I know God's in charge, but experientially, that's not how we live. That's not how we think. That's not what keeps us up at night. And for Nahum, this is so big, right? Who is in charge? Certainly it's Nineveh, right? What do you mean God is going to destroy Nineveh? They have, they've got two walls. They've got two. You don't think that's a big deal. That was a big deal to them. They had two impregnable walls. And yet Nahum reminds God's people, as wicked as this nation is, it's all going to come crumbling and fall. And why is God going to do this? Is it because he's picking on these people? Well, this goes back to understanding, like we talked last week, about biblical justice. Uh, God is good, therefore he will punish evil. Uh, If you repent, he will utterly forgive you. But if you don't repent, he has to punish that to be good. And the way Nahum explains it, if you look at the very last verse... And Nahum chapter 3, verse 19, the way this book ends is, you know, this sort of destruction of Nineveh. Nahum makes the point, he says, There is no easing your hurt. Nineveh, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. (laughs) All of the nations are glad that Nineveh is falling. Why? Because they've all been attacked. They've all seen their sons murdered. They've all seen people enslaved and brought into Assyria. Of course they're glad that the evil empire has fallen. But in Nahum's life, that hadn't happened yet. Nahum hadn't seen it fall. They seemed unstoppable and totally in charge In chapter 2, verses 10, 11, and 12, he compares Nineveh to a lion. He says they're like a lion in their den. And like what do lions do? They just are ferocious and they eat things and bring the prey back. But God is not going to let that happen. He's going to enact his justice. Well, this, you know, I don't know, again, I don't know, maybe you don't like history. I don't know how important this is to know, but maybe this will be interesting to you. Um, What you may not know is that in six 12 BC. You don't need to remember that date. Sometime after Nahum said that Nineveh is going to fall. In 612 BC, you know what happened? A great flood came on Nineveh. And you know what the flood did? It weakened the walls. Because their walls were built on sandy shale type ground. And what happened is the walls fell in another nation called the Babylonians, who you may remember from guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Babylonians came and they utterly destroyed Nineveh. And actually the the king of Nineveh uh, burned himself alive along with his wife and all of his concubines. And what's interesting is the defeat of Nineveh was so utterly uh, complete uh, that We didn't even know where Nineveh was until the year 1842. 
It was so destroyed, the Assyrian Empire collapsed so quickly that we didn't even know where the city of Nineveh was until it was discovered by archaeologists in 1842. And in 1842, they they found the ruins of Nineveh, but they didn't find any silver or gold. (laughs) And what they found in their manuscripts, of course, is they said that it was a flood that came that weakened the walls, that allowed the walls to fall, that allowed the Babylonians to come in through the breach. Makes you look at verse 1, 8 a little differently, doesn't it? What does Nahum prophesy in verse 1, 8? But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, why did God enact this punishment? Well, again, this is that biblical justice. It's an eye for an eye. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that's not injustice. That's great justice because the point of that law, an eye for an eye, is so that there is fairness. You can't kill somebody for losing an eye. It's an eye for an eye. It's not an eye, and so I get to kill you. And it's not, I get to murder you if you steal. It's a equal, it's a limiting of justice. But if you live by the sword, you die. And so what's ironic is, if you read Nahum, is Ninevites had destroyed and enslaved and plundered and had destroyed. They had lived by the sword. They had even destroyed the capital of Egypt called Thebes. And in Nahum chapter 3, verse 8, basically what Nahum says is, everything you did to Thebes, Thebes, guess what? It's going to happen to you, and that's exactly what they did. So for Nahum's audience, and for us, it's an utter reminder that evil is not in charge. It doesn't matter what Satan and the forces of evil in this world plot. It doesn't matter how many fences and walls there are. God is going to send the floods to take them down. So this is such comfort. And this sounds like odd comfort. I know it sounds like odd comfort. And the reason I mentioned comfort is because that's actually what Nahum's name means. It means comfort. And you think, how does the destruction of Nineveh sound anything like comfort? Well, maybe by way of analogy, do you think the utter collapse, I'll use my own people group for a second, Do you think the utter collapse of the Confederate States of America was good news? The burning of Atlanta, Vicksburg, Jackson, Chimneyville, that's what they called it. Was that good news? It depends on who you were, doesn't it? It depends on if you were a slave or not. Because if you were a slave, hallelujah, the chains are gone. Now, I'm not trying to make a political point. My point is, if you are enslaved by Nineveh and you have a memory of them murdering your grandfather, well, when they fall, that is utterly good news. You know, there's a a beautiful story about uh, the last messenger, Gordon Granger, uh, who came to a community in Texas. And uh, we we learned a lot more about him this past year. He was the uh, uh, communicant who sent news to the last slaves in Texas on June 19th. And he, he let those people know that they were free, right? And we got the new federal holiday and all that stuff. But what's interesting is if you read the story of Gordon Granger and his you know, message to Texas, uh, it says you know, in his story that when that news came that the slaves celebrated so exuberantly uh, that one of the slaveholders pulled out his pistol 
and began shooting the ground in front of his slave. And he says, if you dance anymore, I'll shoot you in the forehead. Now, the reason I mention that story is that's the context for the fall of Nineveh. Evil fell on Nineveh because they were propagating evil. And these slaves were now set free. Israel, who had been subjugated and defeated by Assyria, could finally say we're free. I mean, look at verse 115. Behold the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. You see, justice is always sort of in view, right, when it comes to God's wrath. And I think what we have to see is we always want to be on the side of the Lord who's always going to enact justice, right? We don't have to determine justice. We're not free to say what's just or not. Justice is determined by a holy and good God. So how do we understand the story of Nineveh, right? How, how are we supposed to see this sort of defeat of evil? You know, what does this mean for you and me? Well, the more that I've sort of wrestled with Nahum, this is a tough sermon, I get it, and it's a tough book. Uh, the more that I've thought about Nahum and tried to apply it to my own life, what has occurred to me is, we get sort of a picture of temporary repentance, but then sort of a slipping back into sin, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of the story of Nineveh, right? If Nineveh is a city were personified as a person, it's somebody who immediately hears a message of repentance, but then they go back to their old ways. And that reminds me of one of the parables that Jesus teaches. Anybody remember the parable of the sower? In Matthew 13, Jesus uh, gives us the word broadcast. You know, like how radio broadcasts, television broadcasts, actually from the Gospel of Matthew where the sower would do what? He would throw his seeds out in a broadcast, right? And so Jesus uses this analogy and he says the, the good news of the Gospel, right? Repent, turn from your sins and be forgiven. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? This message of the Gospel is like a sower went out and he broadcasts the seed, but in the parable, I mean, who knows the parable, right? What happens in this parable in Matthew 13? He says there are, what? There are four kinds of ground or soil that responds to this message. And of course, as we hear this, we need to be asking ourselves, well, which one am I? You know, if my heart is like soil and the message of the gospel is like seed, well, which one am I? And what Jesus says is some of the seed falls along the path and it never grows. And then there's another kind of soil, and he says it's like rocky soil. And Jesus says the seeds grow for a little while, but then they die off in the sunlight. And then the third category, who remembers? He says there is seed, and it falls among thorns. And the cares of this world and the riches of this age choke it out. And then, of course, the fourth category is the good soil, that accepts the seed and it grows and it has new life. Now, if you don't understand that parable, you're in good company. Nobody understood the parable and the disciples had to go to Jesus and say, what's the point of that parable? And in Matthew 13, Jesus explains, he says, well, the seed that falls on the path, that's like people who uh, just never, ever get the gospel. You know, Satan takes it away from them. And then he says, the people who uh, maybe hear the message of the gospel and they get very excited about it, but then when persecutions come and hardship comes, they die off. Well, that's kind of like the second kind of soil. 
And then Jesus says the third kind of soil, the one that is sown among thorns, is they have a little bit of growth. They respond to the message of repentance. But then the cares of this world and riches choke out the faith. And then, of course, the fourth is the person who hears the gospel, repents and trusts in Christ, and gets the new life they were always supposed to live. So I hope and I pray that everybody listening to me right now is into this fourth category. But when I think about Nineveh, this group that had short-term repentance, but then were sort of choked out by the desires for riches and wealth, who heard Jonah, but then within a couple of years said, no, nah, we're going to take over the northern kingdom anyway. We're going to take out the northern country of Israel because we want their stuff. That faith was sort of snuffed out. And then, I don't think this is necessarily in, intentional or not, but if you look in Nahum chapter 1, verse 10, Nahum says that Nineveh is like a thorn bramble. You see that verse 110, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards, they are consumed like stubble. So how do we avoid the fate of Nineveh? How do we avoid hearing a little bit of the gospel, but then letting other things choke it out? Well, I think that's answered in our, our third and final question. Is God in charge? Absolutely, he is. We're not in charge. We need to be dependent on him. The forces of evil are not in charge. God is going to enact his justice. So we have to see in our world that God is in charge. And that's very much all throughout the book of Nahum. That's our comfort. Of course, you know, what does it mean that, that God is in charge? I mean, is God just going to perpetuate this, like, destruction of the bad guys and destroying Nineveh? I mean, isn't God merciful and gracious and slow to anger? Well, he absolutely is. And you know, Nahum quotes that in verse 3 right there. He quotes Exodus 34 about God's mercy. But what we have to see sort of from the view of the cross is that this message that God is going to um, unleash his wrath against the wicked, against injustice, that he will pursue his enemies into darkness. The thing that will change your life is if you realize, friend, that when God entered our world as a man, Jesus, even though he was sinless and perfect, and he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself always, this Jesus on the cross endured the wrath of God. And Jesus went into darkness. In the gospel, Jesus died and the New Testament will compare the underworld to darkness. You see, the way that we see Nahum is we recognize that God is so loving and good that he would receive the punishment of God's full wrath so that we would never have to fear it, so that we would never have to suffer the fate of Nineveh. But because God is good and all-powerful, this Jesus, Christ the Lord, that I declare to you today, rose from the dead on the third day. And now he promises to forgive all of our sins if you confess him as Lord. And if you trust in him, he says he will send the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. So that even if you die today, you will be with him forever. Because his spirit is alive with you. You don't have to fear his judgment. Why? Because Jesus already drank the cup of his wrath for you. 
you can go to the refuge in the rock of Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel. So, I guess let me just ask you three questions. <laughs> Are you in charge? Am I in charge? No, praise God. We're meant to be dependent. Is evil in charge? Is Nineveh in charge? No. God is going to deal with evil. Don't you worry. Is God in charge? Praise God, he is. And you know how we know he's in charge? Because Jesus Christ is alive. Because he walked out of the tomb and he is making all things new. And he is broadcasting his message of the gospel to all people. And friends, behold, the feet of Jesus are beautiful on the mountain because his feet bear the scars of the nails for you. And he publishes peace to you. Friends, are you the kind of soil that can accept that message or not? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the prophet of Nahum. And Lord, it stretches us. Um, it makes us uncomfortable as you know that it does. Father, would we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And would we see Christ on the cross for us and alive dwelling within us by your spirit? Now, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.